Welcome to Think Global, a podcast for globally-minded disciples seeking God's justice, mercy, and shalom throughout the world. We're glad you're here. Welcome back to the Think Global Podcast. I'm Phil Dark, your host. With me is our other host, Brandon Stiver. Brandon, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. And uh, this is a uh, this is going to be very strange to our listeners. This this episode is coming out on a Friday, and we're not recording yeah. on a Friday. But weird. happy Friday to everyone. Yes, yes. Do you feel weird about that, bro? I feel weird about a lot of this stuff. Just saying, think global <laughs> podcast. I'm still getting used to that, man. So, well, and we're gonna have to alter that a little bit as well. But... Yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are on a Friday. You doing all right, yes. bro? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's been it's been a ride. It's been a ride. I've been doing a lot with uh, my dad's. You know, health is not so great, and so moving out of houses and good time with my brother. But you know, my my actual brother because I call you my brother too. So people might have gotten confused. Um, and uh, we we uh, you know the, the the big huge blessing is we have done all of this moving stuff, and we still actually like each other. So that's a a great thing. Uh, not only like each other, but it's been beautiful teamwork. So I'm very grateful for that because uh, I've heard it go sideways a lot of times with families. And so that's the one thing we've said is, hey man, that we will never, you know, let, let's never let this get in between us in any way. And so, so far it's been awesome. And so I just, I, I expect it will continue to be. Good, um, but yeah, prayers are appreciated for that, for you, from you and other people listening. Very, very much appreciate that. Um, and, uh, yeah. So other than that, man, which has completely exhausted me in every way, um, you know, I'm sure there's other things going on, but I, I kind of have forgotten what they are right now. So yeah. excited for today, excited for this conversation. So, uh, what do we got going right. on? Well, well, speaking of what's going on, this is a what's going on type of episode. So, uh, we, you know, Phil, you've been very gracious to me. I, 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 you know, I, I could sing your praises for a long time, uh, but uh, you know, I, I've enjoyed the opportunity to to produce uh, Think Orphan and also experiment. So today we're doing something new. We're doing something new. Yeah, I had alluded to it. this uh, in the last couple episodes, um, and uh, what we're doing today is what I'm calling a three plus one episode. So, and we're going to do these once a month, and uh, you know, as we step into this uh, Think Global space. And, you know, I was talking with friends, you know, I was talking with Ellie Oswald earlier today, you know, and people are saying, well, are you guys still going to talk about orphan care? Yes, of course, we're going to talk about orphan care. Uh, but we're going to talk about a number of things because there's all sorts of things that put people at risk, all sorts of things that we need to be aware of if we want to see uh, communities uh, grow and develop and justice uh, in throughout the world. Um, and one of the things that came up as we were running Think Orphan you know, I, I think back to an episode that we had uh, with Ruslan, and uh, we were able to get Ruslan Malusha, as you guys are aware, um, a, a friend of the podcast, you know, right after the Ukraine uh, war began, where Russia invaded Ukraine, and we were able to kind of be more current, and that was great. Um, and we've had that opportunity from time to time. But, uh, you know, one thing, it's January, and we we haven't even talked about you know, something like the war in Gaza right now. Um, so, you know, these are these are things that they happen, they affect vulnerability, and we want to create a space where we can actually discuss that, whether it was in, you know, the guests that we're having on um, 
We have uh, uh, our episode, last episode with Dr. Pucci. We have another episode coming up here with Dr. Forrest Inslee about creation care. We want to keep having those conversations. We also want to create a space where we can say, hey, what is going on in the world? What are the implications? So um, that's what these episodes are all about. So the three plus one, this is uh, three things that have happened in the last couple months as it pertains to uh, global development, global justice, um, global injustice in many ways. Uh, what's going on in this world and what should we as Christians be thinking about those things? So, uh, and, you know, we have always had great guests on. And as I was thinking about this type of episode, we always we also want to wrap people in. It's not a traditional interview episode, but there's other trusted colleagues that we can wrap in. So I, I have invited a friend uh, to join us as well, uh, Jeremy Macias. So Jeremy, welcome. Thanks for joining the conversation. Yeah, good to be here, guys. Thanks a lot. So Jeremy is a friend from uh, grad school. Um, he has lived and worked cross-culturally uh, for several years. He's a, he's a husband and a father. Um, he works for World Relief, uh, looking at monitoring and evaluation and, and other things. Um, and he's just a trusted colleague. So we, I, I always love talking with Phil, but I also love talking with other people. So uh, Jeremy, will you quick, quickly introduce yourself to our audience and before we uh, get into uh, the content for this episode. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Brandon. Good to be with you and Phil. Uh, yeah, so I'm Jeremy and I um, work for World Relief, uh, although that's a pretty new position. Um, I've worked uh, in Malawi for uh, over 12 years about, uh, originally as a Peace Corps volunteer, then with a child sponsorship organization. Um, more recently, as I came back to the States a couple of years with my family, um, I was working with an organization called Hope Walks, which uh, provides clubfoot treatment for children in developing countries. Uh, I was also working in monitoring and evaluation uh, with them. Uh, with World Relief, I'm doing monitoring evaluation focused on the U.S. refugee resettlement program that they run. Um, yeah, so like you said, I'm married, uh, three kids, and um, based in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area right now. Love it. Well, Jeremy, you're somebody who I've enjoyed a lot of conversations, not only during grad school, but uh, at other times as well. So glad to have you jump in. So uh, I, I think without further ado, we're going to hop into our first story. You boys ready? Let's do it. Let's right. do it. Let's go. So I had pulled this uh, story um, uh, from The Guardian. Okay. So you guys will find all of these in our show notes. We're going to have our three stories as well as um, as well as the recommendation. You guys can grab all of those things in the show notes or at canopy.international. Um, uh, so... One of the things that I've been following has been this uh, has been this war in Sudan, and there's a couple different things that I kind of want to touch on. But first, for those for for those of our listeners, you guys may not even be aware of a massive war in Sudan. So um, from the Guardian, I'm just reading from there. So the conflict between the rapid support forces and the Sudanese armed forces has now raged for eight months. So this, is, this war has been going on for eight months now with no end in sight, killing thousands of people and creating what the United Nations says is the world's largest human displacement crisis. So an eight month long war in Sudan is creating the world's largest human displacement crisis beyond trapping civilians and destroying infrastructure in a country that already struggles with high rates of poverty. International observers have accused both sides of committing war crimes. 
Evidence is also emerging that the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, and their allies have massacred members of an ethnic of an African ethnic group in West Darfur, uh, potentially repeating the genocide that took place two decades ago. So, um, uh, this this story has just kind of stuck out to me um, for a few different reasons. I don't know, Jeremy. You and I are close to the same age. Phil, you're a grandpa on this uh, episode. Yeah, I'm just so every old. Episode. Ridiculously old. I remember being in uh, <laughs> high school when the genocide in Darfur was taking place. Do you guys remember that? This was like 2003, 2004. Yeah, a little bit. So I didn't even know what the word genocide was or meant you know our last episode of think orphan we had dr pucci on he alluded to uh the war uh, or the the genocide that took place there um but this is this is just something that has just really caught my eye and if you guys um if you guys are familiar with um with kind of the history of sudan or really just kind of the history of post-colonial um post-colonial Africa, there's just been a huge, um, there's, there's just been so much civil war, so much civil war and, uh, so many of these atrocious things that have taken place. And, um, you know, in Sudan in particular, I mean, we can think through the history, there were the lost boys. Um, you guys might remember that just within the last decade, the whole South part of the country, you know, separated, from uh, from the northern part, and we they had the Janjaweed that were that were committing all these atrocious things, and there's just so much that is just wrapped in. And now they finally get out from a dictator, and the two armies that that I just mentioned are now <laughs> warring with one another, and it's just kind of has been this constant thing. Um, one of the things you know, as we kind of think through these. Um, you know, one of the things that kind of, you know, sticks out. So, th- so that, that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Um, and like I said, it's from The Guardian. You know, one of the things at this podcast, we want to be about how can how can people flourish, right? And one of the things that's taking place is that a lot of this conflict is actually in Khartoum. And um, so it's, a, it's like over 9 million people that are living in this capital city, and it's just getting totally decimated. Um, and, uh, you can't flourish in that type of society. And it's, it's actually kind of odd because or not odd, but it's just kind of different because normally when we have these, um, conflicts, these civil wars, you know, they're not always taking place in these kind of larger cities. And yet that is taking place. And that's what led to this, you know, huge human displacement, you know, problem. Um, one of the things, you know, that, that we've been talking about as well has been about, you know, who's helping, what, what money is, you know, being dispersed to kind of help these people. And, and the, and it does kind of, um, continue on where it talks about how the United Nations has received money from donors, but only about 39% of the 2.6 billion that it needs. So we were previously talking with Dr. Pucci about, you know, where money goes and, and how all of that takes place. But I think that the, almost like the economy of attention is also kind of an interesting component here because we hear a lot about what's going on in Gaza and, you know, that's completely founded. We should be hearing about those things. Um, but at the same time, we also you know, that's not the only conflict. Right. And before that it was Ukraine. I don't know. What do you guys think? Like, uh, I, I'm just kind of like wrestling with this from like a Christian standpoint, because 
there's so many things that are going on. And even in, you know, personal matters, things that go on, I'm just kind of wrestling through with this. Why do we give certain things attention and not other things, especially with something like Sudan, where it's saying this is the largest human displacement uh, taking place in the world right now. I don't know. Have you guys followed this story? What are you guys' thoughts? I, I mean, I've been following this a little bit. Uh, as I was working with Hope Walks for the last couple of years, we um, we had a program. Well, we, they still have a program running in Sudan. At the time, there was a couple of clinics. And then when the fighting broke out, one of the clinics was in Khartoum. And of course, that clinic had to shut down. Um, but another clinic kind of in another place called Jazeera, southeast of the capital, was still able to operate for a number of months. Um, but I actually just saw this last week an update from the Hope Walks president that even that clinic, the, I guess the fighting has kind of spread uh, further outside the capital. And even that clinic now has had to shut down um, because of the conflict spreading to that area. So it's just it's sad to think of, you know, in the case of like a place like uh, an organization like Hope Walks, who's trying to provide clubfoot treatment for um, children and the way clubfoot works, it's like if you don't start the treatment early enough, then it can lead to more difficult treatment later on. So some of these children who are going to go without treatment for however long this conflict lasts, so two or three, how many years? I don't know. They may have to start their clubfoot treatment very late in life and, and have worse outcomes because of something like this. So um, yeah. that's kind of that's kind of what my perspective has been with the yeah. Sudan thing in the last couple of years, just my, with uh, my previous work with Hope Walks. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Phil, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, I mean, as far as like, you know, this particular, I actually haven't been following it. And, you know, and to your point, it's it's like if it's not in front of us, we don't we don't won't ever see it. And the reality, too, is of the coverage that is of, you know, Gaza and you know the Israel-Palestine stuff and the the Russia-Ukraine, like we only get a certain you know, bias from somebody, right? It's, it's humans that are giving flawed relay of information. So if you have people on the ground that, you know, they'll give their take and it's usually completely different or very different from what you're hearing from media sources and media outlets. And part of that's just perspective, right? I mean, when you see something, the same as the same event as somebody else, you're going to have different perspectives on those issues. So that's why it's so hard for us when we're not in the middle of it to really be able to follow things because we don't know what we're getting. So that's, that's a, that's one kind of thing that, you know, could be a whole series of podcasts on its own. Um, I will say that one of the best um, depictions of this was a movie that came out, I think it was like 2004, 2005, about Rwanda. Um, it's an HBO film. It's called Sometimes in April. I don't know if you've seen that, but yeah. it was fascinating yeah. because what they did is they kept kind of going back and forth and just juxtaposing the America media coverage and what was going on in America during the genocide with the actual images of the genocide happening over. Now it was, it was a dramatization, but still what was going on in Rwanda and then it would cut back to the U S and one really poignant scene I remember was it was just Matt, you know, massacre, 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 massacre. And then it shows the U S and it was just a, a very peaceful, serene, a vision or, or image of the mall in DC where people were running and people were whatever. And one of the key main characters was driving and it had a radio, um, you know, NPR or some sort of news station. It says, you know, re, you know, current events going on in our, in our world, Kurt Cobain dies, you know, and that was the big news that day. No mention whatsoever of Rwanda. 
Right. Right. And that's kind of what it was so powerful because that is what happens. Right. And so that, that movie was, was very, very good. Strongly recommend that. Um, and, and so, you know, and that's also something that I, I want to, you know, go back, I hearken back and tell people about this a lot. Whenever we talk about displacement, whenever we talk about things like this, um, I think back to our refugee crisis series because I learned so much during that because we had, we tried to have different people from very different perspectives and different areas. Um, most kind of came to similar conclusions, but one of the things that I always go to is, um, when these people are displaced, you know, people go, well, yeah, well, you get displaced. You can come to the Western Europe. You can go to the U.S. Wow, what an amazing, better life. All of them just want to go home, you know, because wherever they go is not home. And I, I read a book. It was a, again, it wasn't a true story, but it was, a, it was very, I thought, poignant as well. It was called Sully by, um, or Sully by um, John Grisham. So he wrote a, a book about a basketball player, and I believe it was Sudan, and he came to the U.S., played basketball in the U.S. anyway. Um, but again, he wasn't home, but he was driven out by this, by the child soldier stuff and the things going on. Um, anyway, that's kind of what I think about when I think about these, these stories is we here are so removed from these things, we here being the U.S., um, or, you know, any Western cultures you're going to be removed from. And a lot of times, even if you're in the same country, you're often removed yeah. from them or the same area you're removed from them sometimes because you're not in the midst of it. And right. so I, you know, and it's hard because if you don't know people there, it's hard to get, you know, real time information and, and news about it. Cause yeah. you got to dig. And then when you dig, you might get one source and who are they, right. you know, attached to? You don't know. What's their motive? You don't know. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's tough to kind of like, to, to kind of make those determinations. Like one thing I know is that when there is this level of human displacement and violence and so forth, like we should be aware <laughs> if, mm -hmm. if for no other reason than that we should be praying, you know, we can 100%. pray for, for small things, big things, things that are small to certain people. And I really think that that's, that that's the best appropriate Christian response. And I do also think, you know, and part of the reason why I wanted to highlight it on this show, especially with this being our first three plus one episode, is the fact that people aren't talking about it. You know, I was listening to NPR this morning when I was driving my kids to school and they did a whole story on um, on people that are buying like this red and white uh, head covering that's very linked with Yasser Arafat and the Palestine. And it's like, OK, that's an interesting story. But is that more interesting than what's going on in Sudan, who I don't hear things from, you know? So I, I just kind of feel as though, you know, there's there's things that we should be that that we should also be focusing on. So I think a, a good Christian response in this, you know, just as Jeremy was talking about Hope Walks and, you know, there are organizations that have been working in these areas. Look those up, find out what they're doing, find out, you know, what needs they might have, but then also pray. And, and, and don't, uh, let's not, let's not, you know, turn off, you know, especially when it's something like genocide, you know, um, you know, we need to be aware of these things. I'll just give one more quote and then throw it over to Jeremy for our next story. But, um, you know, this is from the top Republican, Jim Risch. Uh, he's the top Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And he even acknowledges, despite global focus on crises in Europe and the Middle East, the dire situation in Sudan, characterized by extreme suffering, widespread destruction, and horrendous crimes must not be overlooked. And I think with these types of stories, they they do get overlooked. So uh, 
be praying for Sudan. Uh, let's get into our next story. Jeremy, what do you got for us? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Uh, you know, actually, your, your, your news story is similar to one that I was potentially going to bring about uh, the war, the, the conflict happening in Yemen, another conflict that, you know, tends to get buried down in the news, um, you know, pretty low level. Uh, and that's been right going now, on for so long, that, that conflict. Yeah, in, in fact, been going uh, long. over 10 years now, I think last year was year number 10. Um, it's kind of peaking up in the news a little bit again, just because of some issues on kind of the, the shipping channels and the Red Sea and stuff. But for the most part, it's a, it's a conflict that people don't really talk about. Um, so anyway, when it comes to the, the story that I brought, this is from Politico. Uh, this was actually shared um, uh, by our, the president of World Relief with kind of staff and, you know, something that he um, highlighted to everybody. So the, the title is The Global Elections Washington Should Be Watching in 2024. Um, and essentially, this is going to be, 2024 is going to be a big year for elections uh, around the world. Um, countries, uh, just some reading some quotes here, countries representing half the world population will head to the polls in what's been dubbed as the biggest election year in history. So that's more than 60 countries representing half the world population, about 4 billion people are going to hold various, you know, regional, legislative, presidential elections. Um, and uh, it, this quote is from a Nobel Peace Prize laureate um, from the Philippines. Her name is Maria Ressa. She says, quote, we will know whether democracy lives or dies by the end of 2024. Now, wow. that might be a, that might be a little bold of a statement, but she probably knows what she's talking about. Certainly, um, I think that, you know, all these elections in various uh, regions of the world will kind of promote whether democracy increases or decreases, you know over the coming years. Uh, a couple of them are interesting because there's a couple of countries in West Africa, Mali and Chad, that um, in recent years have had coups. And this coming year is when those coup-led you know, governments right now, those military-led governments are supposed to set up actual democratic elections. So it'll be interesting to see if and when those actually do take place and what that will mean for some of the other countries in Africa that have had recent coups like Niger, uh, Gabon and, and Sudan. So, um, yeah, just a, a lot happening this year uh, yeah. in the world when it comes to a, a democracy and elections. And we'll we'll see how these all, of course, we have our big election here in the U.S. Even our neighbor to the south, Mexico, is having a presidential election this year. Um, Taiwan is having a significant election. So a lot, you know, and of course, the way that elections go and the people that are in charge have a lot to do with, you know, how the vulnerable are either assisted or not yeah. assisted in the various countries where these elections take place. No, that's so good. And, and in many ways, I mean, it, it, classic liberalism, and I don't mean like liberal versus conservative, like classic liberalism is, is, is a little bit uh, contended right now. And I think in terms of kind of the U S as kind of the largest, you know, democratic, you know, uh, country. I know we're a republic as well. Like there, there, there is that kind of tension between democracy and republic, but as kind of the one that has been promoting democracy throughout the global South and really throughout the entire world, uh, you know, this has been, this, this is, this is a, of significant consequence. And 
um, you know, I, I won't speak too much to the U.S. election, but these conversations, I'll just kind of say, are happening even within our own country to a degree that I haven't seen in the past, you know, and I don't think that's just because I was like sitting around in East Africa and totally uh, disengaged, like, like even even this conversation and what you're bringing up is happening here in the U.S. more than what we've seen in the past um, and all the more so in countries, you know, like West Africa, where a lot of these countries only got their independence from colonial power 60, 70 years ago. So these are even newer democracies, quote unquote, than than our own, you know, which is only 250 years old. So it's a yeah, it's a it's a big moment. I mean, I don't know. What are your thoughts, Phil? Well, you know, I I, I think the last five elections or so, everyone has said this is the most important election ever, right? Just in the U.S., right? And they may be right. I don't know. You know, but I bet back in the Civil War times, they were like, this is the most important election ever when, you know, Lincoln, and that may have been the most important election for our country's sake. Um, But there are different things at play in every election, right? But I think the most important thing, and, and you've talked about it already, is the legitimacy of the elections, right? Not just are they legitimate, but what's a perception? Because if the perception in the country is it was illegitimate and you have a whole segment of our population that believes the last, whether right or wrong, that the last election was rigged, was whatever, right? And everyone's like, well, those people are whack jobs. There's a lot of whack jobs then, right? You know, I mean, not everyone that I've talked with is a whack job that thinks that they have different things, different reasons, right? So the point is, though, that they feel it's illegitimate. When they feel it's illegitimate, that takes away from the stability of our country, right? That takes away from the stability of the rule of law. And that's, I remember there was a a talk that Malcolm Gladwell did. I can't remember if it was a Q or one of his podcasts, but he talked about the the most dangerous thing to our country and the security and the and the stability of our country is when people feel that the law and the enforcement of the law is is illegitimate. So you see gang warfare. A lot of that comes from them thinking the police are against them. And so they're going after different things, right? Because they feel that the police are not legitimate. You saw that with the George Floyd. You see that with our different things in our country is that they feel that whatever, right or wrong, doesn't matter. It's their perception of the legitimacy of the government, of the, of the power. Do they feel it's illegitimate if they do? It will be unstable. And so that is why this is so important. And the fact is, has that ship sailed in our country and other? I know I remember, you know, working on Honduras for years and years and years, working in Latin America for years and years, years. I don't remember an election that people that like you look out and there's just overt fraud going on a lot of the times. Like they just, you know, they knock off some of the the you know candidates or they're going in and they're literally buying votes they're literally like votes just disappear and they don't know where they went like that stuff is going on that didn't happen here well i guess maybe some people will argue it did i don't know but the fact is the that is where the legitimacy of these things is so so important and whether you know talking about the democracy and all that Yes, of course, that that is a big part of it. But that that is part of democracy is legitimate elections, right? right. You can't have democracy without legitimate elections. Well, so it, yeah, it, massively it, important. I think the thing that undergirds <clears throat> all of this is what kind of trust do we have within society? Because even if you say like, like Phil, you're right, like in terms of like legitimacy, look, I, I don't, I, I think the election, <laughs> our own election was accurate. I was not surprised, but... Uh, if people are nonetheless saying 
that this took place and that's there is like perception is reality, you know, yeah, and absolutely. then you literally see people. And that's, that's why even as Jeremy brings this story, one thing that we need to be aware of is potential political violence, right? When we talk about East mm-hmm. Africa, um, Tanzania, where I was, was an anomaly because sometimes violence around these things were just commonplace, including just in Kenya, just to the North of us, they had significant political upheaval around elections. So, I mean, I definitely think one piece for us is to be praying for, you know, not just peaceful elections, but, but peaceful transfer of power and all of these things that unfortunately you don't always see. And with this many countries having elections, I mean, we really need to be praying for peace. That's for sure. And, and Brandon, let me just add one thing too. As with most things, the people that get hurt the most are the impoverished, are the people in of poverty, course. are the, you know, because as yeah. we said, you know, I, I can't remember what it, whether it was Poverty Inc. or something else, the people in power have zero interest in getting people out of poverty, right? It's so much easier to have illegitimacy when you have the power and the people don't have the power. And that is when people are in those poverty, those impoverished situations and the vulnerable situations. And then the government continues to get more power because they give them more stuff and so on and so forth. And that's that cycle, right? And so that's where it is so important for us to take heed. If you care about the impoverished, if you care about the people that are in these situations that we are um, you know, talking about so much on this, on this, uh, podcast and that, you know, like I go back to poverty Inc over and over. Cause that, that movie and the, and the series that they did as well, poverty cure, um, is so fascinating, um, to see these different things in the government and, and the systems, um, that are systems and worldview as we read about in when helping hurts and have talked about so much, um, the systems are critical. So if you say, Oh, yeah. it doesn't really matter to me what happens in these elections well it should and it better because it's all interconnected and it, and it all is part of what we're talking about here yeah that's good jeremy any final thoughts on this story you brought to us yeah i think um you know when it comes to elections democracy participation in government you know it always brings up the question you know what's the what's the role of the church what's the role of individual believers um in these types of situations you know here in the U.S. and different countries around the world, you know, and I'll throw it to you guys. You know what? What do you think the role of the church and believers is in, you know, participating in and and in, in a democracy, or maybe in where it's not a democracy? <laughs> no, I love it, and and I think maybe our listeners are somewhat aware that I I'm a little Anabaptist in kind of my view around. Um, like the relationship between church and the government. And I think when people are, um, when people feel disenfranchised, they will make their voices known. And sometimes they may use means that are completely, you know, wrong, you know, like violence or like whatever. But to me, I think that if the church embodies a different politic altogether and, um, and, actually is meeting the needs of our neighbors and our communities, there's just going to be more peace and it won't just depend on which politician or which political party or who fills what office, because the church will be putting flesh on, on the things that they, uh, that, 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 that scripture instructs us to do and, and the ways of Christ. So um, I think we have to embody a different politic altogether. And when we do that, we will bless our neighbors and there will be more peace and there will be less poverty. 
Yeah, 100 percent. I would say, you know, the short of it is the Bible talks very much about, I mean, not as much as money or things like that, but about our role with the government and to submit to authorities. And what does that look like? And it doesn't mean to, you know, give them all the power and whatever, because we have a different power and it's a different eternal perspective. So I think we we de- it's important for us. It is, you know, shalom is what we are seeking, justice to make things right. So part of that is, you know, having legitimacy. Part of that is having, um, you know, people that uh, love the Lord who are helping to make decisions, you know. But at the same time, the only, you know, I say this often, the only thing, the only, the biggest problem with our government is that humans are involved. Right. You know, that's that's the reality yeah. that that's the reality that we live in is we're broken to humans. We're, we're depraved. You know, we all fall short of the glory of God. And what does that look like in the context of government? It, it looks like brokenness. It looks like what yeah. we see. It looks like po- there's a reason called politics. That means someone's got to be right. Someone's got to be wrong. Right. There's no trust. So we can pray for trust. We can when there's trust, you seek the right solutions. But we don't have that right now. We have people arguing, trying to get what's theirs. And it it really, you know, it it sounds a lot like when you uh, watch the the movie City of God and watch the back about the favelas in Brazil. And they interviewed in the in the the, uh, extras, the DVD, you know, special features, interviewed people in the prisons. And they said, why, why do you go and rob people? And they said, well, it's it's we're just trying to get what's ours. And I feel like that's the politicians. Like they're trying to get what's theirs as opposed to seeking what is right. So we as Christians can pray for that justice um, that making what's right assumes a right. Our you know, right is scripture, the absolute truth. And, um, and part of that scripture is we know most of the leaders, most of the kings were very bad, evil people. It's true. Right? The vast majority of them. Yeah. There's three good kings, I believe. Um, and, um, I may be wrong on that number, so correct me if I am, but three out of however many, and that's just in a, in a snapshot in society, uh, snapshot in the, in the biblical history. Right. So that's, that's something that I think we, we pray for that. And I think the biggest thing we can do as individuals is pray for our right response in the midst of it, for us to have a, a shalom building response to people when they talk about politics and not get wrapped up in it and caught up in it in the sense of, you know, I don't think it's saying apathy and remove. Rod Dreher writes a lot about this, but it's this idea of sometimes you do need to remove yourself from it to stay unstained by the world, right? The, the James one twenty seven, the other half that us in the orphan care world often don't talk about, but keep oneself unstained by the world. So, so to be able to be that cup of cold water in the midst of a lot of really ugly, bad stuff, right? What does that look like while still not um, removing yourself from the world because we need to be in the world, not right. of the world? It's good. It's good. All right. I got one more story for us, and this is uh, – this is a, this is an article that was recently released on DevX, and again, um, everything that that we talk about today, you guys will find those in the show notes, um, whether you're listening on Apple or Spotify or wherever you are. And I, I, I meant to mention this as well, um, but each of us are just working for different organizations. Whatever we say only represents us. So, you know, Jeremy is speaking for Jeremy, not World Relief. Our audience may be aware. I work for Care Portal now. Uh, 
congratulations to me. Thank you. I'm not, I'm not speaking on behalf of care portal though. Uh, Phil's the president of his own organization. So maybe he is, I don't know about him. Technically I probably am speaking for Providence at this well, point, there you go. but All right. uh, at so, some point, maybe I won't be speaking. You're for never, Providence. when you're the president, you're never not speaking. For exactly. I, yeah, I kind of <laughs> am officially the representative. So I guess, yes, yeah. I am speaking for, <laughs> There you go. So, um, so anyways, uh, this, this, uh, last story piggybacks off of our conversation with, uh, Dr. Michael Pucci, which we had earlier this month. Um, the title is too big to fail. Oh, that doesn't sound good. Uh, how USAID's $9.5 billion supply chain vision unraveled. Uh, so, we had talked previously about $200 billion aid industry. This is one of the things that we were talking about earlier this month with Dr. Pucci. And this is one of those we, we, we kind of thought through, and this is, this is probably a critique for all of us that are working in international development um, of one nature, of one form or another, right? Even when we talk about global sports or orphan care or refugees, like all of this relates to what's going on globally. But um, the, basically this story is 10 years ago, USAID unveiled the largest contract in its history aimed at transforming health supply chains in lower income countries. It has not gone, gone according to plan. So, I mean, basically the, the story is that this is a $9.5 billion initiative that was led by a particular U.S. contractor, Chemonics International, and the aim was to transform the global health supply chains, um, which was basically going to deliver, you know, HIV AIDS drugs, mosquito nets, contraceptives, to millions of people around the globe, right? Uh, and unfortunately, um, all this kind of emphasis on all this kind of big push towards um, towards all of these medical needs and and kind of improving the supply chain system. I mean, if you guys follow World News, you know, especially since COVID, supply chain things have kind of gone totally haywire. They're starting to come back online. Yeah. But unfortunately, within international development, this is something that is uh, not uncommon. And there has to be this kind of one of the things that I think about with this story, but kind of just within the sector in general, just has to do with the bureaucracy, the kind of bloatedness. You know, this, these are some of the terms that we were talking about earlier this month with Dr. Pucci um, that we kind of build. Now, we have to hold that intention with the reality that people that work for nonprofits and work in global development also, you know, need their own livelihoods. All of that is true, but somehow <laughs> even with these, I mean, it, it, even that title too big to fail, um, you know, you kind of think like, well, if, if I'm, if I'm, uh, shooting an arrow that's $9.5 billion heavy, surely I'm going to hit, right? Surely. Right. But unfortunately, with this article and with um, a lot of what we put into in terms of uh, aid uh, towards other countries, and you could read about this from Dembi Samoyo or William Easterly or others, uh, it just kind of misses the mark. Um, and that can be in healthcare, like this story is about, or it can be in any other areas. Um, I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts? I mean, these are even U.S. Uh, you know tax dollars that are going to USAID. We want to see that. Of course, we want to see support from the U.S. into other countries, but we want to have see it done appropriately. So I, I, what, do you, what are your guys' kind of thoughts as you kind of hear that $9.5 billion, but it doesn't go according to plan? 
this is the industry in which, you know, many of our listeners are operating. What are your guys' thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I haven't had the the experience of working directly with any USAID projects during my time in Malawi. You know, I was mostly working with smaller nonprofit organizations that, you know, weren't able to access the funding of that scale. Um, but certainly all those years in Malawi, I, you know, saw firsthand a lot of USAID funded projects happening around me. And, you know, first of all, a lot of USAID projects do go well and, and, and make a big difference for a lot of people. Um, so I'll start there, but at the same time, you know, anytime, you know, governments get behind funding projects like this, you know, unfortunately, I think sometimes it can, like you mentioned, there's bureaucracy that gets involved. Um, there's political factors, um, you know, from in terms of what do you fund, what do you not fund, what administrations here, uh, you know. So yeah, sometimes things are going to go wrong. Right. Projects aren't going to hit the way they're supposed to hit. A lot of money gets wasted. Um, you know, in in the end, you hope that more good is being done than harm. <laughs> but right. you know, that's unfortunately that's not always the case. Well, unfortunately, sometimes when we're investing a lot of money into these types of things, people will follow money. And that includes people that are not going to not going to have good intent, right? Not just sure, the people yeah. that are that are manufacturing and distributing mosquito nets, but other people as well. One of the things that it talks about in this DevX article is that dozens of arrests and indictments in relation to illegal activity around the project with USAID's Officer of Inspector General now investigating allegations of fraud in Nigeria. So in some regards, because we're creating an economy around these development dollars, it's actually attracting people into that space that are not that don't have the, 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 the interests of the greater community that is just in need of, you know, ARVs or mosquito nets or what have you. I don't know. Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah I do. Um, shocking. I know that's going to shock you that I have thoughts yeah, so on shocking. this. Um, <laughs> a, a book that I, I, I read a long time ago, um, right, almost right after I got involved with, you know, with Providence back in the, I, I, I'm looking at it now as far, and I realized it was written in 2007, but I was probably read it soon after it came out, but it's called The White Man's Burden. I don't know if you've read that. I just said William um, Easterly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you did just say that. William Easterly. Yeah, there you go. Him. He did write that. Yep. Why the West efforts to aid the rest have done so much ill and so little good, right? So it talked about 1.3 trillion since the 60s, I believe, in aid, and all but one of the country's GDPs are worse off than they were at the outset of that, um, which is insane um, when you when you look at that. And a lot of them are way worse off than they were before. Um, and he goes into all the details you talked about, Malaria Nets. You talked about all those different things, right? So. That's something that has been, I mean, it's one of the things that inspired a lot of what we've talked about on this show, right? That book is now, I will say it's a book that Brandon would normally recommend um, because it is, it does, it's a lot of uh, economics and things like that. So I will, I'm not going to lie. I skimmed the last two thirds of the book because I think the first hundred pages really gives the thesis. It's a thick book. Um, the rest of it goes into a lot of the details and the economics of it. So don't don't be discouraged if you get it kind of, you know, uh, weighed down by all that. But the first hundred pages is so good. If you're doing this work, I strongly, strongly recommend it as much as I'd recommend when helping hurts because it brings a different take and it brings a more it brings. They're all economists, really. That's a right. little known fact about uh, Fickert and, and, and about those guys. But. 
they are all economic uh, economists and they come at it from a different angle than a lot of other people do. So I strongly recommend that. And I just think that, that it goes to all that we talk about on this show, which is be wise with how you do this stuff, because we could throw money at a lot of things. And it, I mean, just like with your kids, you're not just going to throw money at your kids and just say, good luck, go. Yeah. Right? No, of course you wouldn't do that. No, you're going to raise them up in that. And most of the time, you're not, you might give them a little bit just so they can learn how to, to use it. I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, you know, these are like our kids because they're little toddlers. No, but we wouldn't do that with our kids. So why are we doing it with other people who, you know, we, we are in, in partnership with because you wouldn't do that with anybody. So I, I would say, how can we walk alongside people in a way that's wise? Money is a huge part of that because oftentimes we throw money at things because oftentimes we throw money at things because we don't want to deal with them. So we just say, sure. here, take the money and go. And now we can wipe our hands because we've done our job. We're good. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a way to kind of pass the buck, uh, uh -huh. almost literally in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, that's so good. Uh, all right. So this is a three plus one episode. So we don't want to, you know, when we, when we transition from Think Orphan, we don't do recommendations as often, but we always want recommendations. And somehow between uh, William Easterly and the news articles themselves and the refugee series that Phil did several years ago, we've, we've done lots of recommendations already. So there you guys go, go, go and get equipped. You know, one of the hearts with Canopy International is really to get people support. So Jeremy is uh, not only uh, working with uh, World Relief as his full-time gig, but we got a bunch of people that are doing this side grind to support and coach. And uh, Jeremy is one of those associates. And uh, Jeremy, you have, a, you have a recommendation for us uh, just in terms of getting down to practice and uh, project implementation. So what do you got for us today? Yeah, thanks, Brandon. So uh, the thing I'm recommending is um, something called the Meal D Pro Guide. And basically, it's the monitoring, evaluation, accountability, and learning uh, for the development professional. It's a guide that was um, put together some years, not too long ago, some years ago by uh, a few different organizations, uh, Catholic Relief Services, Humanitarian Leadership Academy, and Humentum kind of all worked together to put this guide together. Um, the, the website links will be in the show notes. Um, but I really found this guide super helpful as I was doing my master's uh, degree where, you know, Brandon and I were in a cohort together. Um, really taught me a lot of the foundational stuff that I know now about monitoring and evaluation. And I put it to practice immediately in uh, my research project at the time in, in school, which was helping a, um, like a child care center in Malawi kind of develop monitoring and evaluation framework. And that guide and that those principles were kind of the basis of it. And what's cool is there's also on a website called kayaconnect.org, they have an online course that's totally free. It's like an online self-directed course. Uh, and they'll guide you through the whole Meal D Pro guide, um, you know, with different modules and quizzes and things like that. At the end, you get a little certification saying that you finished it. And there's even a link to uh, a more professional certification that you can get in monitoring and evaluation uh, based on that Meal D Pro guide. So that's the resource that I'm recommending. It's uh, it's really it'll it'll just give you the whole wraparound experience of what yeah. is monitoring and evaluation in the project cycle when you're trying to develop programs and projects. 
I love it, man. No, that's so good. That's so practical. And I'll just uh, personally attest. I remember being in one of our sessions and somehow I think it was just me, you and Dr. Birch, uh, who our audience also knows. And when you got into your project, I was like, he is like 10 times better at this stuff than I am. So good to tap into that resource. Uh, Jeremy, Phil, thanks guys for jumping into this uh, first three plus one episode. You guys noticed on the last episode, we did not have our traditional sign off, but uh, I was thinking and praying through like, what is it that we really want for this community? And in my own devotion time, I came across this uh, prayer that I'm going to speak as a blessing uh, at the end of this episode and other episodes to come. So as we think about all the things that are going on in the world and what Christ is calling us to to do, may he grant us grace to fearlessly contend against evil and to make no peace with oppression, and that we might reverently use our freedom, help us to employ it in the maintenance of justice in our communities and among the nations, to the glory of God's holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with the Father and Holy Spirit one God now and forever. Thank you guys so much. And uh, we'll talk to you guys on the next episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Think Global. If you enjoyed the show, please do three things for us. One, rate and review us online. Two, share it with a friend. And three, join us at canopy.international so you can plug into a community of disciples seeking God's justice, mercy, and shalom throughout the world. We'll talk to you soon.